This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the renewed energy in the anti-choice movement that has pushed us into a new phase of the struggle for reproductive justice, transitioning away from the chipping away phase into the full frontal assault phase. Clips today come from Counterspin, The Majority Report, The Brian Lehrer Show, Boom Lawyered, The Real News, The Tom Hartman Program, and Diane Reem's show, On My Mind. Clyde Chambliss, Alabama Senate sponsor of a law banning virtually all abortion, was asked whether the law would likewise criminalize in vitro fertilization clinics that discard embryos. His answer was clear. Quote, the egg in the lab doesn't apply. It's not in a woman. Close quote. You could spend all day pointing out indications that the legislators seeking to curtail abortion access are not driven by concern for the sanctity of all, even potential, human life, but by the exertion of authority over particularly some women's lives and possibilities. Blowing away the fog around the anti-abortion movement is useful, not as an end in itself, but if it helps us see how to move effectively to ensure all women's human rights while protecting those made particularly vulnerable under the current onslaught. Joining us now from Georgia, where another anti-abortion law has been signed recently, are Jill Heviside, a lawyer and If When How HIV Reproductive Justice Fellow with Sister Love, Inc., and Oriaku Njaku, co-founder and executive director of Access Reproductive Care Southeast. They join us by phone from Atlanta. Welcome you both, Jill Heviside and Oriaku Njaku. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio, Indiana, multiple states, as listeners know, are passing bills curtailing access to abortion in various ways. If you look particularly at social media, you'd say we're living in the end times. And that's why I particularly appreciated the departure point of the piece that you co-authored for Rewire.News, reflected in the headline, Abortion Care is Still Legal in Georgia. It's not, in the piece, a rosy-tinted view by any means, but why was it important for you to start there? It was important for us to start there because it's true. Safe and legal abortion services are available in every state across the country, including Georgia. Stories and discourse that lead with, Georgia just made abortion illegal, are dangerous because they can deter people from seeking care. In Georgia specifically, we have lawsuits that are going to be filed soon, so this law may never go into effect. Every law prohibiting abortion this early in pregnancy has been blocked or overturned by courts. We just want to make sure people know that their pregnancy, miscarriage, or abortion will not be further criminalized in Georgia. We've already seen an uptick in calls to clinics and advocacy orgs and abortion funds from patients that are asking if they're going to be arrested, if they come in for their appointments. So to make sure people know, as we in the movement know, that this is a long game. And while folks should be concerned because these are troubling times, we need to be able to organize and plan for the fight ahead while also making sure we're taking care of each and every person seeking abortion services along the way. 
Well, there are issues with the specifics in these bills, the manipulative and misleading use of heartbeat, for example, which you should feel free to explain. And then the idea in the Georgia law that the rape and incest exceptions would only apply if a police report's been filed. You can see the problems there. But then in another way, the specifics almost don't matter if you're trying to explain the intent of a ban like Georgia's. But you really do have to fight then on on more than one level with this kind of legislation, don't you? Yeah, that's definitely true. To your point about the mechanics of the bill, the Georgia bill definitely raises some complex legal questions that aren't settled under current law. But if we keep paying attention to what may happen, then we're not really fighting for what we need in the moment right now. The heartbeat descriptor of this bill is a misnomer and is, you know, was intentionally picked by anti-abortion legislators to really, like, hone in on the messaging and control the narrative around these bills. But this bill, along with all similar bills, just basically are an outright ban on abortion if they are allowed to go into effect. Just calling it a heartbeat bill doesn't do service to the reality that this is outright banning abortion or an attempt to ban abortion and overturn Roe, essentially. So this is what we're up against. It's been pointed out that, first of all, you're talking about electric activity around a fetal pole as early as six weeks at a time when many women don't even know yet that they're pregnant which of course means that you really are banning, trying to ban all, all abortions. And, and also, you know, folks like Clyde Chambliss over in Alabama says things like, well, I'm not trained medically, so I don't know the proper terminology and timelines. You know, they say that out loud and you can face palm all you want, but the thing is, they don't care that they sound, you know, unintelligent on the science because that's not their point. Their point is to criminalize abortion, right? So the details really don't matter as much as some folks kind of say, aha, look, they, you know, we caught them in a, in a hypocritical statement or something. That's exactly right. The intent of this bill and all similar bills that are being put forth across the country isn't to, you know, protect women's health or preserve the sanctity of life. Their intent is to control the reproductive lives and freedoms of people across the country and to further criminalize abortion and pregnancy. If these legislators were interested in, you know, the sanctity of life or improving health outcomes, they would do things like expand Medicaid or address maternal mortality. And here in Georgia, where black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy, related outcomes than white women. Those are the real pro-life, to use their term, issues that they should be focusing on, not how and when and by what means people should make decisions about continuing or terminating their pregnancies. Well, Oriaku, you just raised it. Both proponents and opponents of these bans see them as aiming to be used to get at Roe v. Wade. How should we be thinking about Roe right now? What do we think would happen if it were, in fact, overturned? I mean, the reality is what Roe did was essentially make abortion legal in the United States, but it didn't guarantee that abortion was going to be accessible. And so a lot of the people who we work with every day that we're in community with have actually been living this post-Roe reality that people are scared of. That is actually the reality of folks who are on the ground and have been for decades now. So, you know, what has been happening is, yes, over the course of time, as a lot of this legislation and these laws have been introduced, it has made it harder to access an abortion. But I feel like that is also part of their strategy. If they were to completely overturn Roe, I think one of the 
really beautiful things about this particular moment right now is that while our legislators are focused on building power over us, we're actually excited about building power with folks that we live with and work with and love in community. So no matter what happens, we are still going to be making sure that people have access to the abortions that they want to need no matter what. I mean, there's no way that we can truly predict what is going to happen, but we know that our role as grassroots organizations or specifically ARC Southeast as an abortion fund is to make sure that people have access to the abortions that they want and need without any biases or barriers. Well, that actually leads me to another question. What is the relationship between abortion access and reproductive justice? What does that latter term entail? Yeah, so reproductive justice, you know, if you want to think of it as like three different things, there's reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice. And when reproductive justice was essentially created by and for Black women, it was coined in 1994 in a hotel room, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But when they came up with this term reproductive justice, it was done as almost like a counter to what the reproductive rights framework was putting out there and that it was just about choice. By being a Black woman, by being a person of of color living in this country, we recognize that we do not live single-issue lives. And so the decisions that we make go beyond just making a choice or not. The decisions that we make are intersectional. They're based on economics, our environment, our gender, our ability to get the funds that we need to have lives where we can thrive. Sister Song, which is the Women of Color Collective, here defines reproductive justice as a human right to maintain bodily autonomy, to have children, to not have children, and to parent to the children that we have in safe and sustainable communities. And to add quickly to what Oriaku shared, the fact that reproductive justice is an intersectional framework, it allows us to bring in organizations that may have different central missions, but all support reproductive freedom for all Georgians. So Sister Love, where I work, we're an HIV advocacy, sexual health, and reproductive justice organization. And so we're able to address these intersecting issues, how HIV and abortion and, you know, young pregnancy and other issues relating to sexual health are all stigmatized and are all criminalized. So it's a way for us to build our collective power and find our common goals and really just work collectively in order to push through reproductive freedom. Speaking of ideas, so uh, obviously the the big news this week, um, or part of it, has been the uh, series of anti-abortion, anti-choice laws that have been passed, uh, well, really over the past two or three weeks, right? We've seen one in Ohio. We've seen one in Georgia, now in Alabama. Alabama's the most extreme one. I want to just caution people a little bit about making this exclusively about the failure to uh, exempt women uh, from this law and doctors from this law because of 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 rape or incest, um, because the real problem is that the that there is any prohibition against uh, women having sovereignty over their own body, and at the very least, I guess 
you could say about about the that law is that at least it is not um i mean it's consistent i mean clearly you do not pass a law like this unless on some level you perceive a woman's role primary role to be an incubator for um potential children and so uh whether they have been uh they have conceived uh by choice uh by accident uh by rape um it, it it really is irrelevant to these people and because they perceive women fundamentally because and I do mean that word literally um because it is a fundamentalist christian and religious in some religions uh, other religions as well view that their primary reason for existence is to be able to um, have God create babies through them. And so, uh, you know, I, I see people out there uh, critiquing the law. And obviously it is it it from a political standpoint, it has some uh, expediency. Uh, but I'm not convinced that, you know, part of the idea here is one that we've seen from Republicans and conservatives for 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 frankly, for a couple of decades um that uh, either by design or by um uh, you know just simply by result that certain things are normalized because of how extreme uh the republicans and the conservatives have become in attempting to push in some instances their theocratic views uh of government upon the rest of us and uh in some instances uh they're you know uh, i guess equally market fundamentalist views on us as well but um we should not normalize the idea of banning abortion even if there is an exemption for women who have been raped and or are the victim of incest um or because their lives are in jeopardy uh the fact of the matter is is that um it is not uh, the fetus is not a person and our laws govern persons. God's law may uh, govern life, and God may have chosen to say, "Okay, it's okay that the uh, the the four-legged uh, life they can be eaten, uh, the plant life they can be eaten, and uh, the people who have um, who have committed certain crimes they can be killed." And of course, we can kill people in war. We could kill people by overcharging uh, for medications that could prevent their death. Um, but uh, I'm going to intervene here. I mean, we're not responsible as a civil society to maintain the perspectives, particularly in this country. Um, in most countries, it seems to be the case as well. Uh, but we're not responsible to maintain other people's notion of what God's law is. Other people, people themselves can can d decide if they will abide by what they perceive as God's law and whether they perceive that God exists. But we live in a civil society. Life is not protected in our society. We can just look around and see that. That is a principle. Persons are protected. And uh, who we deem to be a person at various times, has changed in our society. 
right? I mean, we know that slaves were not persons 200 years ago in this country. They were sub person. <laughs> um, and, and this is what you see with the attempt with uh, fetuses to turn them into persons. But it is problematic to do so. And that is why it's so difficult for them to pass these laws and have them work. Because when you have a person whose existence depends on another person so uh, intimately, uh, then all of a sudden you get conflicts that are unresolvable by civil law. So, I mean, that is, uh, you know, I just want to just make a note of that. It's just a, a bit of a, a pet peeve. I understand from a, you know, from a political perspective, uh, it makes it, uh, there is a certain expedience to it. But it, it, I'm afraid that it's setting up an opportunity on the Supreme Court for uh, the compromise to be, we're going to allow exemptions for rape and incest uh, as a federal law. Uh, but I think, you know, there is more and more sense that um, the political wing of the conservative movement is uh, going to push the judicial wing, um, maybe even faster than they had themselves anticipated. But we shall see. In the meantime, as the 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 I guess the extremeness. And really, this I think, you know, people are starting to realize uh, because we don't have a huge amount of people, um, certainly none who could get pregnant at this point, who lived in an era when abortion was illegal. And I think there are many uh, gains that we've made in society that uh, later generations begin to uh, just sort of take for granted. And now I think there's starting to become a little bit more focus as we get closer to a time where, uh, without doubt, there is going to be a uh, continued curtailment, not just even from a practical sense, but from a legal sense of the right of women to have sovereignty over their own body. And we're starting to see the implications of that or starting to see the um you know, to be able to more clearly imagine the implications of that. And it, it's not just, uh, obviously, that abortions are illegal in certain states. Uh, some states are passing laws that says it's illegal to cross state lines to get an abortion. It's not just that abortions are going to be illegal, exempted with uh, rape and incest. That's possible that that's going to go away. But also, we're going to be losing. There's also a whole host of health issues that are involved in this. Because you have laws that start to say, like, well, how do we know it was an abortion uh, as opposed to a, um, um, uh, you know, a, uh, gosh, miscarriage, a miscarriage. Right. I mean, how how if this if it is illegal for an abortion, but a miscarriage and an abortion look very similar in terms of the end product. You're going to start having to uh, as a, a woman. Register your miscarriages. But how are you going to register miscarriages unless you register your pregnancies? I mean, there's a whole host of things that are uh, involved in this that are, you know, are going to be start uh, coming a little bit clearer as we get closer to uh, this moment. And maybe uh, won't be totally clear until we get to the other side of it.
you would love a way to financially support this show without it costing you anything, there's good news. You can support the show by bookmarking and using my affiliate link every time you shop with that company online. Y you know, basically the one company online. Lots of evil tendencies, owned by the richest dude in the world, that one. Chances are you shop there at least now and then, maybe even a lot. Perhaps you make a lot of business-related purchases, I know some of you do. Or maybe you have a standard selection of home goods you get delivered regularly. In any case, you might have some mixed feelings about it, and you'd be right to. But if you do end up using the site, at least you can help siphon off some of that corporate blood money to help support the production of this show. Your shopping experience will be identical to usual, and it won't cost you a dime more. You can get the affiliate link from the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you can find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. You can bookmark the link so you can set it and forget it while continuing to support us into the future. It helps more than you think, I promise it does, and the more who join in, the more it helps. So thanks for taking the time. For decades... There have been activists who've been furious basically ever since um, Roe was decided. Um, the anti-abortion movement has has worked to roll back access, um, and that you know the the most the biggest sort of stage of that was the passage of the Hyde Amendment in 1976, which forbid federal insurance money to be used to pay for abortions, which basically cut off low-income women, um, predominantly women of color, from access to the health care that was their legal right. Um, people have been screaming about that for years. There are all these what you'll often hear described as the chipping away state laws, uh, trap laws that insisted that clinics meet certain uh, specifications, and many of them were forced to close, waiting periods, restrictions, parental consent that made abortion ever harder to obtain, especially for those who perhaps were in most need, um, low-income women, young women. Um, and people have been yelling about this for years. And we have been told, I have been told, activists have been told over and over again by those, um, you know, whether it's socially or politically, that these fears are overdramatic and over blown and this is a sort of single issue whining and Roe's going to remain the law of the land and it's settled case law and nothing's going to happen to it. But part of the point that I want to make is it's not even just about whether Roe gets overturned. It's the fact that ever since abortion was made legal, it has become ever more inaccessible to the people who need to access it as part of comprehensive health care. And we were all thinking about your book, meaning, you know, my team in in the office here, your book, uh, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, in the last few days since the Alabama law was passed, where, you know, we could talk about the legal nuances and whether um, Brett Kavanaugh is likely to uphold this mm -hmm. aspect or that aspect, but really just so many women, especially right now, just want to scream. Right. Well, and and they should, but the point is, a lot of people should have been screaming f much earlier. And you know who was screaming and where anger was effective was on the anti-abortion side. As soon as – and that's part of – you know, I write in my book – my book is largely about um, progressive anger, anger at uh, gendered and racial and economic inequality from a sort of politically progressive standpoint. But I also write in that book about the power of anger unleashed by those – on the right, um, sort of in favor of a patriarchal white capitalist power structure, that anger is potent too. And that has been the anger that has motivated so many of the activists who've been pushing these anti-abortion uh, measures in states and, and nationally. And that anger has worked for them. One thing that you write in your New York Magazine article is that your rage stems in part from 
dynasties of white men united in their dedication to restricting women's bodily autonomy, but they include Democrats. Oh, they absolutely include Democrats. I've been raging at the Democratic Party about abortion, you know, since I was a child, in part, as I write in my piece, because I grew up in Pennsylvania, um, where Bob Casey Sr. was the governor, and he was virulently anti-abortion. His son, Bob Casey Jr., is now senior senator in Pennsylvania. He is better than his father was. He has sort of evolved, as they say, and he's gotten better, but he still voted for a 20-week ban last year in his role as a senator. But this is a whole generation of Democratic politics, especially in the wake of Roe. And actually, I think in the wake of a lot of the transformative social movements, uh, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the Democratic Party, which stood theoretically for those politics, was very scared of its role in aggressively standing up for those rights. And and there was a period of several decades where a lot of the guys that they hired were these middle-of-the-road, anti-choice Democrats, and it happened It's the 70s, it's the 80s. This is Joe Biden. Joe Biden v- voted for that Hyde Amendment in the 70s and remained anti-abortion for much of his career in the Senate. It's only recently that he has gotten better on abortion. Um, so, But he wasn't alone either. It was the Casey's. Harry Reid was personally anti-abortion. There was, And up until, you know, in 2006, Rahm Emanuel, as he was running the Democrats, you know, 50 state strategy to to put together a democratic house advocated a big tent where we invite anti-abortion democrats in so that we can get a democratic majority right but then we have a democratic majority with a strong anti-abortion contingent and in fact that had an impact we had the democratic majority in the house after 2006 but it was anti-abortion democrats who held up health care reform in 2009 and 2010 by insisting that federal that healthcare not pay for abortions. So terrific, we have our Democratic majority, but it's still held up keeping women from getting the access to the healthcare that they need. It was anti-abortion Democrats who did that? It was Bart Stupak, Ben Nelson, Democrats, anti-abortion Democrats who, who stalled the passage. Of, that was, you know, they weren't the majority of the Democratic Party, but they held it up to a sort of crisis point and putting women in a terrible position. Wait, are you going to stand in the way of health care reform? Not just women, but women and men who support access to abortion and the full range of reproductive health care. Is that fight over now? No. Is there basically no place in the Democratic Party for anti-choice people? Absolutely not. That fight is not over. In 2017, in the wake of the 2016 election, Tom Perez, the head of the of the DNC and Bernie Sanders, went on a, a unity tour um, where they spoke about about the need to create a big tent and how this couldn't be a litmus test. Nancy Pelosi has said the same thing. It is still an active conversation. There is still the view in the Democratic Party that the the issue we can sort of trade off on in order to get purportedly more moderate you know, regions to vote for Democrats is abortion. Now, A, why is it always abortion the thing that can trade? B, this is bad science because, in fact, what used to happen, we used to poll on abortion one way, which is asking people, hey, are you pro or anti, right? Are you for abortion or or against abortion? And when you polled that way, which is how it was done for decades, you got a pretty 50-50 split, which led to this received wisdom that the country is irrevocably split in half on abortion. And And so then by those numbers, okay, so here and there you give. But in fact, in recent years, they have gotten better at polling and they start polling in a different way. And they ask first, are you are you personally in favor of abortion? And many people say no. 
And then you say, do you want abortion to remain legal? And what you get when you ask it in that two-question way is a 70% number on who want it to remain legal. It is one of the most popular positions that Democrats stand for. And yet there is this old unwillingness to aggressively stand behind it. Listeners, we can take your phone calls for Rebecca Traster from New York Magazine. Maybe you saw her new piece, Our Fury Over Abortion was dismissed for decades as hysterical, but we were gaslit. Maybe talk about your own fury that was written off as hysterical. Maybe you want to talk about your own feeling of having been gaslit or anything else, 212-433-WNYC in light of Alabama and the other things going on, 212-433-9692. Um, what about the, the gender divide or lack of divide in the polls? Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you deal with that? I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it's, it's a lot closer than one might guess between men and women. women and men who are pro and anti-abortion specifically. Absolutely. It's much more of a political division. But again, and I would have to look at the the sort of better polling for the gender divide. I don't know how that works when you look at those polls that are producing an entirely different set of numbers. Yes, but for years, it's been that men and women are are divided. But that in, in certain ways mirrors our partisan politics. Again, we talk a lot about the 53% of white women um, who, who, voted for Trump. who voted for Trump. And in fact, a majority of white women have voted Republican since they've been keeping track of this and certainly before they've been keeping track of it, with one exception, the 1992 presidential election. Um, so that's a lot of anti-abortion rights women. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's part of what I was saying before, that what you're talking about – Women who are willing to be, ha- be to be angry on behalf of fundamentally patriarchal policies are very useful to those power to the people in power and and who want to keep a grasp on on patriarchal and white patriarchal power because those women do the do the work of giving voice to that fury um, as women and that is a cr- tremendously useful um, role for them and and of course many of them passionately believe what they're angry about. Lawmakers in New York cheered with delight upon the passage of legislation that would allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. These are living, feeling, beautiful babies who will never get the chance to share their love and their dreams with the world. And then we had the case of the governor of Virginia, where he stated he would execute a baby after birth. So what you just heard is one Donald J. Trump freaking out about the fact that (laughs) babies are being executed after birth. I mean, they are draining babies of their blood and putting that blood into a chalice, like a gold chalice, like a Raiders of the Lost Ark type of Holy Grail situation. (laughs) And then pro-choice advocates are drinking that blood in order to gain the baby's life essence and live forever. I heard this was a plot uh, line in the next season of Game of Thrones, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You might be right. So here's what happened. There are some 
Unfortunate comments from Governor Ralph Northam. Yeah. Old Governor Ralph Northam of Mr. Blackface in the med school yearbooks, <sighs> Governor Ralph Northam. Med school yearbook. Like, who has med- who has yearbooks in med school? First of all, why do you got a yearbook in med school? Med school. Second of all, why are you in blackface? But that's neither that's, here nor there. Or maybe it's episode. both here and there. Who knows? <laughs> but in addition to Northam's comments... Uh, Delegate Kathy Tran sparked this debate initially. Mm -hmm. Both of them misspoke, and it's unfortunate that they misspoke. But even after they clarified their comments, it was too late. Anti-choicers had their soundbite, and they started screaming about how Democrats want to abort newborns, how they want to execute newborns. Mm -hmm. And in the wake of all of that screaming came the Born Alive Survivor Protection Bill, which was introduced by Ben Sasse in the wake of these unfortunate comments. Well, so let's let's... Go into the comments a little bit, because I think the context is going to help. And they're unfortunate, but they're not so bad as to suggest, you know, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Chalice, you know, infant sacrifices. (laughs) Well, that's true. I have all sorts of imagery in my head with this episode, and none of it's good. We need to maybe write a screenplay after, (laughs) right after we finish recording this. Let's just get get the screenplay going. So (laughs) we're going to do some like anti-abortion fanfic on this. Exactly, exactly. Look for our new Tumblr, guys. Um, (laughs) Virginia delegate Kathy Tran said in a committee hearing that a bill that she was sponsoring would technically allow abortion when a woman was showing signs of labor. The bill was an effort to roll back abortion restrictions that have been enacted over the last several years in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So during this committee hearing, a Republican lawmaker asked her whether the bill would allow for an abortion to occur when a woman is in labor and about to give birth. And unfortunately, Kathy Tran said yes. Mm -hmm. Of course, she didn't mean that the bill is going to allow abortions to occur for newborns. And she tried to explain that. And then Governor Ralph Northam tried to explain it and somehow made it worse by saying... Shocked. (laughs) Right. I am so surprised that Northam makes something worse. Perish the thought. He said, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. And the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Okay, hold up. So Northam is a physician. First of all, he should know better than to just start speaking about science in front of Republicans as though they are just going to follow along. Right. What he is describing here is end-of-life care in those situations where a pregnant person with a non-viable pregnancy or some severe fetal abnormality goes into labor. And the steps that are taken to create comfort in that difficult situation. He is not describing a patient going up and saying, you know, eight and a half months, but I'm kind of done with this. So can we just get this over with? Like, that's not what's happening. It really isn't. And uh, the Born Alive Survivor Protection Bill would require doctors to use all means available to save the life of a child born alive after an attempted abortion. The bill says that providers must, quote, Exercise the same degree of professional skill, care, and diligence to preserve the life and health of the child as they would for, quote, any other child born alive at the same gestational age. Ben Sassy is calling this an infanticide ban. Infanticide is already banned! It is! <laughs> like, infanticide! 
Clyde is already banned. We know that. We have a similar bill that already exists, right? The Born Alive Infant Protection Act of 2002. So if there was any lingering doubt, it should be put to bed. This whole Born Alive Survivor Protection Bill, it's nothing but a publicity stunt. Nothing. It's a publicity stunt. And it's important to, to describe what the Born Alive Infant Protection Act of 2002 does. And what it does, it defines an infant as born alive following, quote, natural or induced labor, cesarean section, or induced abortion as a person with corresponding legal protections. George W. Bush signed it into law. 2002. So why are we here? We are here because, hmm, let's see, it's a little sweaty right now for Republicans looking into 2020. Yes. Maybe. It is. It is a, a tad sweaty. But so let's talk about what lessons we can learn from all of this, right? Let's talk yeah. about how it is that the anti-choice reaction has been so over the top based on really just some misspeaking by Northam mm -hmm. and Tran. I mean, they... They just said the wrong thing in the wrong way, but that gave anti-choicers all the ammo that they needed to just freak out about how Democrats want to murder babies. And frankly, it really just goes to show that neither Democrats nor Republicans really know how to talk about abortion in a way that is based in science and grounded in fact. And even when they should have those tools, like Northam should have those tools as a physician, they get so wrapped up in the garbage stigma around it in the political environment that they still step in it. Here's a man who, of anybody out there, should not have, have um, stepped in it, and yet he stepped in it. Real bad. Let's talk about why it is our listeners should care about this fight, you know, other yeah. than being able to smack down arguments with people on Facebook and Twitter or, you know, responding to your Uncle Jim, who still manages to think that Barack Obama is a Kenyan and can't stop sending you messages about it from his Hotmail account. <laughs> Why should <laughs> listeners care? Well, because so much is at stake, right? I mean, we're having this um, trumped up debate over, you know, aborting babies after they're born at a time when some states are trying to restore abortion rights. Like that's what was happening in Virginia that sparked this. And while other states like Arkansas and Missouri are passing these trigger laws that would immediately criminalize abortion in their states should row fall. So it's not hyperbolic to say that abortion rights are in the precipice right now. And any of this rhetoric um, and, and legislating around it is an additional threat. Absolutely. And another important point is that anti-choicers want to conduct the abortion debate at the margins. They yes, want they to have the abortion debate focus on later abortions. Even though approximately 90% of all abortions in the United States occur in the first trimester or 12 weeks of pregnancy, according to the Guttmacher Institute, which despite the rantings and ravings of anti-choicers is actually a nonpartisan group, two-thirds of abortions occur at eight weeks or earlier, about 10% take place between the 13th and 22nd week of pregnancy, and 1.3% take place after 21 weeks of gestation. So focusing on the margin means focusing on the hardest cases, and the hardest cases spark more outrage because the hardest cases are the most heartbreaking for the pregnant person, even though that's not what anti-choices are concerned about. 
Absolutely. And that segues into another reason why our listeners should care about it. And it's because of the Roberts Court, right? If a law like this were to get enacted, there's obviously a really good chance that the court would weigh in on it. And frankly, I don't feel too optimistic about how that would go. We've seen this playbook before. Antis have set the stage in the court. And not surprisingly, Kennedy made it all really, really bad, didn't he? He always does. I mean, this is the Kennedy who said in Gonzalez v. Carhartt that, you know, I don't have any evidence that abortion really harms and traumatizes pregnant women, but I'm going to assume it does because it probably does, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Kennedy, why? What, what What did you do to us, Kennedy? <laughs> In the early 2000s, we saw Republicans enact a very similar strategy around quote-unquote partial birth abortion bans, and it started in states in Nebraska, and that's uh, that ban went up to the Supreme Court, and um, the court struck that law in uh, Stenberg v. Carhartt. And then um, an election happened, and Sandra Day O'Connor retired, and we got Sam Alito, and we have a brand new court. And a couple years later, we have the Supreme Court upholding an identical federal law, the first time ever it's upheld a pre-viability abortion ban. And the playbook was all what we're seeing here, extreme rhetoric, you know, um, trading on patients and providers' pain and substituting, you know, um, market-driven language and talking points in place of um, clear, sober, scientific descriptions of medical procedures and, and situations. Right. Anti-choicers don't want to talk about science. They want to make up terms like partial birth abortion or dismemberment abortion, which is the term that they've invented for D&E bans. And it's, 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 as you said, they are just playing on the sympathies of people who really, really, really believe that babies shouldn't be aborted after they're born, even though that's not happening. They're not really keen on providing actual facts. They're keen on playing on the emotions of people. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Now, there have been some people in the entertainment industry that have stepped forward to say they're going to boycott Georgia, that they're not going to produce their films in Georgia. Do you think this will actually influence Georgia lawmakers in their decision making? Um, no, uh, that's pretty the wide wow. consensus here on the ground is that we don't. I, I mean, so let me back up for a second. Boycotts and strikes and economic pushes like this are actually very good strategic tools 
But the key word is strategic, right? And they mm-hmm. actually have to be tied to local organizing, local voices, and people who actually understand the intricacies in the legislature and with all these things going on. So, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams, who ran for governor, put out a series of tweets, and her organization, Fair Fight, is raising money to support reproductive justice organizations locally. They've asked people to, you know, consider supporting and staying and helping Georgians fight. Mm-hmm. So it's understandable the need to want to, to boycott. But here's the thing, right? Boycotting Georgia does not do anything also about the national, the very strategic national effort to actually pass these laws. And when you're thinking about right to life, if we want to boycott, if we want to do economic boycott, we should be researching who are the corporate entities, who are, you know, major big ways, who are the people who are funding the right to life movement nationally that are actually pushing these laws. We've seen people in the past look at boycotts of ALEC. This is the type of same type of strategy if you want to boycott. But for those in the music, the, the, the entertainment industry who think they're supporting they should actually look to the women um, who are in the local, you know, film and media uh, uh, union who actually have their own petition that with all these people who are mm-hmm. so concerned about supporting and saying women, you would think they would have tens of hundreds of thousands of signatures right now. Mm-hmm. And they're start trying to get 2000 signatures to stand in solidarity with them. You also have the reproductive justice, you know, leaders within various organizations. Um, you have Sister Song, you have Feminist Women's Health Center, you have um, ARC Southeast, you have all these different organizations, you have Yellow Fund in Alabama. You have all these different organizations where people are saying, hey, don't boycott us. Why don't you come work and help invest in us? Because we actually want to change right. the balance of power. We need freedom fighters. We need we need financial freedom writers to come and help us flip the, the flip the switch on what's happening down here. Because people are working very hard just because you don't hear about it doesn't mean it isn't happening. But removing I, I do understand people not wanting to give money to a state but we also give money to the federal government and we have the person we have as president that's doing the, the messed up things that, they, that he's doing. So instead of, you know, just completely pulling any resources, if you want to boycott, that's fine. But then at least, you know, invest in the people yes. who are trying to make it better. Turns out the war on women has a corporate connection. There are uh, there's a, a number of very large corporations that are explicitly and ex- and and you know right out there funding the po- the very politicians who are who are leading aggressively leading the war on women. Check it out. Share it with your friends. Ding the bell. Leave your comments. And please, if you like our videos, subscribe to our channel. Judd Legum has this uh, new news site, uh, uh, a website that it's called Popular Information, uh, popular.info. Uh, his, uh, in fact, you can email him at judd, J-U-D-D, at popular.info if you want to get on his uh, newsletter mailing list, which I'm on. And I find it fast. It's called Popular Information. And I find it absolutely fascinating. He does a really, really good job. Uh, although at the, at the top of every newsletter, he should be putting information about exactly how to get to his website. <laughs> but in any case, these six corporations, this is his headline. Judd, Judd is a reporter. He's been around for a long time and he's done a great job. He used to work for the Center for American Progress and, and write for their uh, blog, I think, progress.org. And, you know, before they uh, uh, started shedding genuine progressives and um, his headline, these six corporations are financing the war on women in six states. So 
Alabama, uh, here we here we go. Alabama ver- banned virtually all abortions. Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Ohio banned all abortions after six weeks, which is before most women know that they're pregnant. Missouri banned abortion after nine weeks. Um, and so, you know, who's who's supporting this? Well, uh, AT and T, uh, according to the corporate website, the company makes sure women at AT and T feel supported in everything they do. But AT&T has donated $196,600 to politicians in six states who have pushed for and enacted abortion bans. Uh, to Missouri Governor Mike Parson, to Missouri House Speaker Elijah Har, to Missouri State Senate, uh, Senate Majority Leader Caleb Rowden. Uh, well, I need not go through the list because you probably don't recognize these names. But here, AT&T, $196,600 to uh, these uh, forced pregnancy uh, lawmakers. Walmart has donated $57,700 to forced pregnancy wallmaker, uh, lawmakers across these six states. Pfizer has donated $53,650 to forced pregnancy uh, lawmakers in these, in these six states. Interestingly, I don't know if Pfizer makes birth control pills or not, but that's next, right? That's next on the agenda is they're going to, they're coming after birth control pills. And, you know, ask any, any of these uh, anti-abortion activists. They will, they will proudly tell you that. Eli Lilly, $66,250 across five states. Um, Coca-Cola, $40,800 going to the anti-abortion, um, movement leaders in these, uh, six states. Aetna, $26,600 across four states. Um, and then, you know, uh, in addition to that, states make it difficult to uncover corporate do- uh, contributions to politicians. Each state has its own system, and few of them are user-friendly. Uh, Judd really did some extraordinary work here. So, uh, once again, the companies that you may want to contact and tell them that you're, if you are, uh, either supportive of or disgusted by their support for forced pregnancy lawmakers, AT&T, Walmart, Pfizer... It's two pages the Pfizer supported. Eli Lilly and Coca-Cola and Aetna. So just, you know, tip of the hat to Judd Legum for that. My understanding is that you... You think that the, that an overturning of Roe would be a good thing. Is that relative to, you know, the, uh, uh, the, essentially what we, what we're, we're seeing in Ohio or these, these sort of like when it's chipped away, it's hard, you know, there's no headline of the day. There's no, it's very hard to rally people around in Ohio that one by one, the health inspector is shutting down these, uh, clinics. Um, and so it's very difficult to sort of like make people aware of how this right is being taken away and, and to rally against it. But. Yeah, because one of the things that we've already seen on the ground is, especially since 2010, but even before that, it's been nearly impossible for many communities, especially rural communities and communities of color and communities 
of low economic standing to be able to access abortion as it is. It's too expensive. There's too many hoops to jump through. All of these things make it too hard for people who need abortions to be able to get to them. Yet abortion is still legal in all of these places. What we need are these really big wake up calls that will help make people who are less affected by abortion restrictions understand that this is a fight that they have to have and be engaged with now. And we saw that immediately after Trump was elected, when millions of women came out, not just in D.C., but across the country and marched in order to say, no, you are not going to take our rights away right now. And then we saw it again when people came out, when Kavanaugh was up for up for appointment and people were coming into D.C. and they were being arrested. There was this huge moment where everybody understood this is a point of change. I believe personally that that in a lot of cases, it is too hard for people to access abortion. It's why we are seeing so much of an uptick of people trying to access it by buying medication online, um, people trying to do things themselves, people already leaving states in order to get to other states in order to get care. Should we hit a point where Roe is officially overturned and people understand, okay, these states do not have any care whatsoever. And we're talking about not just like a state here or a state there, but an entire swath of the country that is going to have no care, basically from the edge of New Mexico all the way out to Florida. There will be no legal abortion there. When that happens, it's unavoidable. When that happens, it's a rallying point. And unfortunately, I feel like although activists right now are doing so much good to try and make sure that people are getting access, there's just only so much that can be done until the people of privilege really recognize that this is a problem and step up. All right. Well, that's I mean, that seems to me to be a big dilemma to even in the event that Roe is overturned or even in the, I think, the worst case, the worser case, as it were, that it is de facto overturned, but in but nominally not overturned, which is that, you know, when we talk about Alabama, when we talk about Mississippi, when we talk about Missouri, we talk about, uh, you know, Louisiana, um, we're talking about, uh, like you say, um, women who are maybe living in poverty um, and uh, don't have access to this care. When we talk about the states where it will still be legal, we're talking about the bigger, the wealthier states, right? Where presumably um, uh, folks of privilege are are living and will not have the same experience uh, because it won't be in the local news. It won't be in the, the you know, uh, to the extent that it's even in the national news. Because the national media is centered around uh, those areas where abortion will uh, very more than likely still be legal. How how does that word get out? I mean, effectively now there's a couple of states, like you say, where where abortion is almost effectively uh, unattainable, but yet very few people are conscious of that. So what we need to do is make sure that abortion becomes a much bigger platform, especially when we head into the 2020 elections. We need to make sure that every um, candidate knows how to answer questions about abortion. One of the things that is going to be probably the biggest factor of 2020 is the fact that the right has already decided that they are going to define everything by infanticide, that they are going to only talk about abortion as it comes to third trimester abortions. And they're going to conflate everything that happens after a first 
first trimester to be a so-called late-term abortion, which does not exist. Our politicians need to know how to talk about this. They need to know how to talk about abortion as a right that belongs to everyone. And that isn't just something that people unfortunately have to have, um, that it needs to be considered a part of health care. It can't be divorced from it. And in a lot of ways, it needs not just to be clinic based, because regardless of what happens with abortion law, as long as abortion can only exist by going to an abortion clinic rather than through purchasing online, doing telemed, um, as long as it's restricted to just a clinic, then the right knows that all they have to do is close a clinic, be it through regulations, through zoning, through violence. If they can close a clinic, then they can cut off healthcare access. We need to be sure that everybody understands that this is not just a rural problem or not just a Midwest or a South. This is how they will close clinics in New York. This is how they will close clinics in California. They will close clinics everywhere because all it takes is to take them out one by one and no one will have care. We need to expand access beyond just clinics. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, defend and strengthen reproductive justice beyond Roe versus Wade. We all understand that the latest state legislative assaults on reproductive rights are the final steps of a 40-year strategy on the right. It's easy to look at this moment and already feel defeated. But how we choose to respond in this moment will make all the difference. First, let's not forget that for now, abortion Abortion is still legal in every state, so throw your energy into protecting those exercising their legal right to this medical procedure. If you have time to give, consider becoming an abortion clinic escort. Escorts are volunteers who accompany those seeking reproductive care on the walk from their transportation to the clinic, a journey often filled with anti-abortion protesters who hurl shame or aggressively try to make patients question their choice. The National Abortion Federation and the Abortion Care Network have maps to help you find clinics near you. Reach out to the clinics where you'd like to volunteer to see what help they need. Escorts not only help provide a supportive environment for patients, but also help destigmatize abortion. There are also organizations working across the country to help people access reproductive care, such as the National Network of Abortion Funds. The CUT has curated a list of these organizations, along with local organizations in states with already extremely limited access to abortion, like Missouri, Kentucky, and Mississippi. Visit the activism segment of today's show notes for the full list and links. On a national level, many on the right are practically giddy with anticipation that one of their barbaric state laws will go to the Supreme Court and be upheld. But they don't seem to be looking beyond the end of Roe. Those on the left should be. We can raise the alarm along with solutions that will make the right to reproductive freedom even stronger than Roe v. Wade ever did. Multiple Democratic presidential candidates are behind passing the Each Woman Act, which would prohibit abortion restrictions on private insurance, and an end to the Hyde Amendment, which restricts federal dollars from paying for abortion services. 
Senator Elizabeth Warren's multi-point plan to protect choice includes both of these legislative moves, plus creating federal statutory rights that parallel the constitutional right in the Roe v. Wade decision, passing laws that preempt state efforts to limit reproductive health care, guaranteeing reproductive health care as part of all health coverage, including Medicare for All, and ensuring equal access and reproductive justice by providing access to contraception, sex education, maternity care, adequate wages, and more. Remember that even if you live in a blue state, reproductive rights may still be under threat, so no sitting on the sidelines. And finally, we want to emphasize that talking about this issue with friends and family and sharing your own personal experience with abortion can change hearts and minds. We also encourage you to check out the hashtag YouKnowMe to read other stories and share them in your online communities. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if protecting quality reproductive care and justice is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about defending and strengthening reproductive justice beyond Roe versus Wade via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. What about the woman herself? Apparently, I heard one legislator say, well, we wouldn't touch her. It's not her fault. It's simply our intent to keep life alive. But we would not prosecute the woman at all. You know, that's been a long time talking point of the anti-abortion movement. There's long been talk about anti-abortion legislation being about protecting women, protecting their health. It's not the woman's fault. It's these horrible doctors. However, we have already seen women be prosecuted. We've seen women who've had abortions, who have self-induced abortions, um, end up in jail. We have seen women who've had miscarriages even end up getting uh, prosecuted under old legislation that was sort of dug up um, as a way to throw them in jail. These are stories that we have already seen happen in America. Um, and I do think that it is fair to say that the future under these laws, if they go into effect, um, would probably carry more such incidents. Under the law, as it has been written in Alabama, what does happen if a woman has a miscarriage? I don't know <laughs> is the is the unsettling answer. Um, you know, I think a lot of these laws, even if they are explicitly written in a way to not prosecute women, they just end up doing so anyway because an overzealous prosecutor might get a hold of the case. They might just sort of get a bee in their bonnet that they want to punish a particular woman. And of course, you know, these things tend to happen to poor women, 
to women of color, women who don't have legal resources that some of us have. Um, so again, I don't think that there's a clear answer to that because who knows what a prosecutor will do. Even now, uh, it's pretty difficult to find a clinic that will carry out an abortion, is it not? Absolutely, especially in the Deep South. Right. Um, you know, in the Alabama, Mississippi area, there's, uh, there are states in that region with only one abortion clinic. Georgia is sort of one of the exceptions there, which is, I think, why the heartbeat bill in that state maybe got so much attention in part was because they actually have fairly decent access as far as these things go. But a lot of that region just already, frankly, in some parts of those states might as well not have Roe v. Wade uh, because access is so bad that, you know, what's the point of the legal right if you can't access the procedure? It does seem as though this approach on the part of state governments is different from how they've gone before trying to overrule Roe v. Wade. Is that your impression? That's absolutely right. We should really think of what's happening in 2019 as a new phase of the anti-abortion movement. The last phase we can sort of think of as between about 2010 and 2018, and that was the era of regulating abortion clinics. Um, that was the era of what are called trap laws, where, you know, Suddenly, an abortion clinic to be able to stay open has to increase the size of its janitor's closet and the width of its hallways. Just these sort of ridiculous measures um, that really do nothing to protect women's health uh, or advance women's health needs, but are very, very expensive for clinics. And so we saw clinics closing all over the place because of these regulations. We saw hundreds of bills a year introduced and hundreds of them actually passed in some years during that period. But during that period, these really mega extreme bans on abortion, they were sort of floating around to the fringes. We would see them pop up. There were a handful of these six-week uh, heartbeat bills that popped up a few times, but they were really considered very extreme and very on the fringes. However, basically since the moment that Justice Kennedy announced his retirement last year and it became clear that the makeup of the Supreme Court was going to shift, we have seen this enormous explosion in six-week bans, very early pre-viability bans, total bans, you know, we are seeing this talk of executing women, which some people in the anti-abortion movement are still uncomfortable talking about, but we're seeing it. There was a bill in Texas that introduced that notion. Lauren, you know, it's so hard for me to understand after all these years why women and their bodies remain the target of political rhetoric. Yeah, it is pretty wild. Um, I mean, you see women from a slightly older generation holding signs at rallies saying, I can't believe we still have to protest this stuff. Exactly. And things like that. I, I think that this is a tactic. I think politicians keep turning to this well of misogyny and anti-woman legislation because it riles people up and it works. It certainly worked for the Republican Party since Reagan. You know, they built a whole new voting coalition out of this. And so I think they, they're returning to this well again today because, again, they, they know it has worked for them. 
We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, speaking with reproductive justice activists to give an overview of the new spate of anti-choice laws. Sam Cedar on the Majority Report laid out the difference between life and legal persons, and the importance of the separation between what some may call God's law and civil law. The Brian Lehrer Show spoke with Rebecca Traster about the effectiveness of woman's anger on either side of the abortion divide. Boom lawyered, myth-busted the Republicans' new tactic of invoking infanticide and explained why debating at the margins in order to play on emotions is to the advantage of the anti-choice movement. The Real News asked and answered the question about the effectiveness of boycotting anti-choice states. The Tom Hartman program listed several corporations you may want to target in a boycott for their support of anti-choice politicians. The Majority Report spoke with Robin Marty about what may happen if Roe were to really be overturned. Our activism for today is in support of defending the reproductive rights we have and fighting to strengthen them in the future. And finally, we just heard Diane Reem's show, On My Mind, discussing how these laws target women with the full backing of structural misogyny, all while claiming to be protecting women. Members this week will be hearing a bit more on this topic from Boom Lawyered, as this is their wheelhouse. They'll be discussing several of the unintentional or depending on how cynical you are, completely intentional consequences of these anti-choice laws, and some good news out of Kansas of all places, whose Supreme Court just affirmed the right to abortion in the most strident terms. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in regarding your Marxism, and I'm very glad that you're not hauling water and we have your voice to listen to in a podcast. A um, couple of thoughts. One is you talked about uh, people who are proponing the, the current system and the con fall into one of two categories. I would actually say there's a third category, and I had this argument uh, with the 2016 elections regarding Bernie, and that argument goes something like, well, I paid my way for college and I worked hard at paying my loans off. Therefore, it would be unfair to me if everyone else had their college tuition paid for. So there's that stance of, well, since I paid my dues through the current system to get where I am, then a new system that would benefit everybody, but maybe not me directly. Therefore, I'm not in support of that system because everyone should pay what I pay. So there's that. But the, the other thing I was thinking as, as, as that Marxism um, thing was going on was about our kids. How do we raise our kids? You know, there's different philosophies with raising young kids and money. Do they just get an allowance? Do they have to do anything for that allowance? Do they have to earn their allowance? Do they get $2 if they put their clothes in the laundry hamper? And another dollar if they put their, you know, dishes each night in the dishwasher. Or do they just get $5 a week no matter what they do? And that's their mad spending money. But socially, we're asking our kids to pick up your clothes and put the dishes in the dishwasher and stuff. So how do, how do people, I'd love to hear feedback on this, you know, what has been successful, what hasn't. Um, and I can always call back with my story, but I'd like to hear other people's first. Those are my two thoughts. Stay awesome.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now today, here at the end of the show, I want to make a, a stew of final comments. We're going to throw a whole bunch of things in here, let it simmer and see what everyone thinks. So uh, first topic, as Alan just brought up and as a recent episode talked on uh, Marxism, when I did the episode on Marxism, just doing the research and pulling up clips on Marxism, I found this old voicemail that uh, someone called in and this was played on the show in 2016 before the election. And I just want to play a quick little snippet of it. The Marxist believes that capitalism cannot be reformed in a meaningful sense, and that it always results in a race to the bottom. Yes, cosmetic reforms can happen, but as long as there is a working class and an upper class, these reforms will eventually be undone by elites and extreme poverty will return. The Marxist tradition argues that capitalism will always result in greater and greater levels of poverty, that when people get hungry enough, a revolution will happen. This ideological tradition claims that it's inevitable, and the reason for this has to do with Marxist dialectic of history. There's some historical evidence for it as well. Uh, It involves the uh, history of the French and Russian revolutions, but the position itself is certainly an ideological one. Now, the Marxist believes that communism is inevitable, Uh, again, because of the dialectic, and that eventually things will get bad enough for people to start uh, rising up and destroying the institutions that create inequality. They believe things just have to get bad enough for people to do this. This is where the acceleration of decay comes in. If you believe that a revolution is inevitable, then some Marxists think that you should do anything you can to spark it. You see, the Marxist has two options. They can cause a lot of pain and death now, or they can wait and watch children die in factories. They can watch people slowly become hungrier. They can watch the disabled die and the marginalized become worse off. The Marxist might be able to look a trans person in the eye and say, yes, you're going to die because of choices I've made. But if your death makes the revolution come one day sooner, it could save the lives of thousands of Chinese factory workers and Indian factory workers. Uh, Your death could save the lives of millions, uh, some of the millions killed in profit-driven wars. Your death could help destroy the auto industry and save the planet from climate change. I'm not saying that I believe any of this. I think it's plausible, but it's dangerous to gamble with lies on something so uncertain. And as I said, that's just a snippet of that voicemail, but I, th- I think it gives a decent overview of, of the accelerationist theory of change. And I'll remind regular listeners that a week or between two and three weeks ago, uh, we received a call from a former Bernie or Bust supporter who had previously been in favor of accelerationist uh, advocacy and, and essentially being okay with Trump coming to power in the hopes that it would make things worse and spark a sort of counter-revolution, who was calling in to express regret at that strategy, having seen, rather than Trump sparking energy in people, he had actually been seeing 
the energy drain out of people and and that people were sort of turning off to politics when he thought that they would have been turning on even more. So that was that was interesting. And um, and, and so then to just bring in one last thing in today's show, we heard a, an obvious supporter of reproductive justice saying that, you know, in all honesty, it might be better if Roe just went away because that may be the thing that sparks effectively the counter-revolution and, and uh, springboards us to a new world of even greater protection for reproductive rights than we have now under Roe, especially now under Roe in tatters, as it currently is, especially from state to state. So I just thought all those things mixed together creates an interesting comparison. I'm I'm wondering people's thoughts about the differences between those. I, I certainly have my own thoughts. You could you could say that hoping that Roe goes away in an effort to strengthen reproductive rights is narrowly focused. And of course, we're already in a, a pretty terrible situation. And so the fallout would be relatively minor, whereas the counter revolution could be uh, in a much more positive direction. So you could say maybe the the costs are uh, reasonable for the potential benefit, whereas advocating for a Bernie or Bust style 2016 presidential voting strategy, effectively hoping that Trump would win, you could argue that, well, the damage for that was far too great compared to the potential upside, which, as was sort of expressed there, it's a very theoretical concept of accelerationist policies advocating for making things as bad as possible, causing great suffering in the hopes of sparking a counter-revolution. And and I just want to add one last thing into this pot, which is an email I received from Jean recently, who's a relatively new listener, so she didn't know my position on this, but because my position is identical to hers, I can just read her position, and now everyone will know what my position is. So Jean writes, she wanted to express her concern that, that she had been feeling uh, in, in her life over the last several years. So Jean writes... As a woman with a uterus that I prefer not to relinquish autonomy of to the government, I have always hated the argument that there is, quote, no difference, unquote, between Republicans and Democrats when it comes from people on the left. There was a segment of the Occupy group that would say this, and basically all the Jill Stein voters in 2016 were saying this as well. I know that activists on the left are extremely offended by the term Bernie bros because they do not want to be told that it's their male privilege to focus purely on the issues of wages, healthcare, unions, and the environment and decide that not voting or voting for a third party is an okay thing to do. As a woman, I feel like many of the men on the left who refuse to vote for a Democrat are exercising their male privilege to ignore the abortion issue. My proof that this is what is happening now is, with the Georgia and Alabama abortion bills, leftists who I know voted for Stein and who post 
all the time. Negative stuff about Hillary Clinton, Pete Buttigieg, and Kamala Harris have posted nothing about the abortion bills. Also, when mutual friends post things about the abortion bills, these leftists don't even react. They do react to posts about criminal justice reform, wages, unions, healthcare, etc. I understand that they want to do politics their way and that they feel that trying to move the Democratic Party to the left and closer to their positions is futile, but I also think it's really sexist of them to not see that Effectively, their political stance has, in a very real, very concrete way, hurt women a lot, and they just don't seem to care. So thanks to Gene for chiming in with that, and if you have thoughts on anything that's been said today, or anything else, I would love to hear your comments. Keep them coming in at the voicemail line 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.